This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is January 23rd. Today, the S&P, so far year to date, is up about 1.74%. Dow's dropped slightly, and that's largely due to a lot of disappointing earnings that have just come out, uh, 3M, Johnson & Johnson in particular. Um, so little kind of weakness in the industrial side, but we'll talk about this a little bit later. A lot of Wall Street has changed the forecast for this year to the positive, um, some nominally, um, some banks a little bit slightly more than nominal um, revisions. But yeah, let, Tim, let's let's get into this year so far. Yeah, I mean, you hit on all the things that I want to talk about. I mean, yeah. expectations for multiples continue to kind of move higher, even though earnings growth has been coming down. You know, I think I mentioned it last week where, you know, just a few months ago, expectations for fourth quarter earnings were at like 8%. And then by the time earnings season started, they were actually negative and we're only 10, 11% into earnings season, but we're down about 3%. Uh, so there's no earnings growth. And yet the market just keeps working. So there's the P and there's the E. Well, the multiple mm -hmm. is the P and that keeps expanding. And the expectation is that, well, earnings are going to start to accelerate. So it's almost as if we're late cycle, right? Like investors will tell you, you want to buy cyclicals when they're expensive because that means that they're probably at an earnings trough and then earnings will start to ramp again. And I understand that there's excitement about the Fed will be cutting rates to some degree this year. Uh, but is is nominal GDP going to reaccelerate to double digits as a result? That seems hard to believe. We are we are still decelerating as good or resilient or whatever word you want to use for the economy, it is still slowing. It is still very slowly slowing. Uh, margins are still under pressure. And you read it every month in the NFIB where they small businesses and businesses across the country have margin pressures and while pricing is getting more difficult. To me, that means that we are continue to go, we are going to continue to see margin pressure and you know i i you know all i say about the equity world is that the risk reward isn't very good look if the fed is going to continue to uh is going to cut rates and janet yellen with the treasury and i want to talk more about this is going to keep all uh, we'll get a qra here in a week if she's going to keep all of the funding in bills at the very short end and you'll keep the long end low so housing can stay strong and, and cost of capital doesn't move up too much, you know, markets could, could be just fine. But you're trying to thin, you're, you're trying to, uh, you, you know, you're, you're trying to get through a pretty thin window of not too hot and not too cold that would be just right to allow a situation where uh, the Fed can be cutting rates at a time where we're not falling into a recession, demand stays strong enough that corporate profits can hold up. I, I just think that's a, you're trying to thread the needle. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned GDP. So the Commerce Department is going to release the initial gross domestic product on Thursday. I think the PCE report comes in on Friday. 
right now, the services expect that the U.S. economy has grown at a 1.7 pace for the final three months of 2023. Uh, what are your thoughts on what GDP is going to look like and the PCE report is yeah. going to look like kind of coming in towards yeah. later at the end of this week? Well, why don't we start with PCE? PCE is pretty interesting in that, um, look, you, you get most of those components ahead of time, right? We've had CPI, we've had PPI, we've had a lot of data that filters into that PCE. So look, when you look at PCE on a three-month and a six-month basis, you're already below 2%. Uh, so you are getting to where the Fed wants to get PCE to, and there's expectations that you could have a downside surprise on that print because, some, as I said, a lot of that data is already well known. What's interesting, though, is you, you've had a backup in rates here. You've had some weakness in the bond market over the last couple of weeks since we've gotten that CPI and PPI data, uh, which is interesting, right? Forward expectations. Uh, you look at like the five-year, five-year. Forward expectations of inflation are moving up. Uh, so maybe you are getting to that point where the market is starting to look at this cyclical contraction and in inflation and saying, well, how durable is that trend if we still have wages growing at five or five and a half percent, if shipping rates are moving up, if oil prices are starting to bounce off the 70 level and trying to get through the 75 level, is this, is this really just going to be ephemeral, this drop? Uh, in inflation, and you'll see rates moving back up again, and then you won't have, not rates moving up, but inflation moving back up, and you won't have a situation where the Fed can cut six or seven times this year. March has already gotten pushed, March is already starting to get priced out. I said last week, uh, when when the odds of a, of a Fed uh, cut in March was as high as 80%, if the Fed doesn't want to cut in March, they better do some jawboning, and they did. And that has gotten expectations of a March cut, I think, as we speak today, down below 50%. On GDP, uh, look, the Atlanta Fed has been pretty damn good. Like, that used to be a terrible series, right? People used to always dismiss that. But it's been more right than the other trackers, the other nowcasts. And that's up to 2.3%. You cited a 1.7% number. The interesting thing is that GDI, which gets re reported later, so it gets less headlines, has been running well below GDP. The average of the two series has been only around 1%. And I think that's kind of what we look at going forward. I, I think that we are going to continue to slow and that GDP number will move more towards where the GDI, gross domestic income, uh, which is a hard number, which is tangible, which is based on tax receipts and withholdings. Uh, so perhaps the more accurate number so, you know, my, my overall view on economic growth is about the same as it has been, is that this all is going to look a little bit L-shaped or a little bit sideways with pretty slow uh, with pretty slow growth, but the risk that inflation picks up again. And that would be a very, very different dynamic than what we've enjoyed, which is more resilient growth and, and softer inflation. You wrote in your blog, 10 Variant Views for 2024, which is also part of our portfolio analysis in our upcoming year in review um, white paper, that we're going to see three cuts. And there's some people who still think that we're going to see seven cuts this year. Uh, that increasingly mm -hmm. seems to be more the case that it's going to be three if they're not talking about March. And then if the economy is still running this hot, 
But I'd just like to know if yep. you've changed your view on that at all, or if that's still very you're you still very firmly viewed we're going to see three cuts. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, look, early in 2023, I was very much in the sort of economic bear camp, and somewhere mm. around the middle of last year, there were a couple of epiphanies that hit me and should have hit everybody, which is that. Uh, velocity of money is better and velocity of money is better because of this wage growth, because of this secularly tight labor market. There's meaningful wage pressure. Uh, there's more labor activity than we've had since the Reagan administration, right? So there is a real meaningful pickup in the pressure on wages when people are making five, five and a half percent more every year. Most people don't have savings, so they're spending all of that money. That drives higher velocity. And then the fact that the back end has come in a little bit, the the 10-year the, the has come in a little bit, you, you see immediately more demand on the housing side. Now, there's a lot of supply coming in housing, too. There's a lot of supply coming in multifamily. I respect that. But I just don't see an environment that looks anything like 2008 where we're going to have this really weak uh, contraction in housing. I just think there's too much demand. I think there's still uh, this wealth that has been created. We talk a lot about you know this multi-generational wealth transfer, uh, cash buyers outweighing first-time buyers for the first time in history. Like you do have these dynamics of where did all that six, seven trillion dollars go? Well, it, it went into wealth. You know, Bank of America tells you uh, that their median account is still 37% bigger than it was than before the pandemic. And, and that is leading to uh, more demand uh, in housing. Yeah. So those are the two things that keep me in that kind of higher for longer, the Fed only cuts three times camp. Sure. I mean, yeah, it seems like a tit for tat mortgage rates, 30 year at one point was eight, then it gets down to six, six. And then, you know, you're, you're just, you're playing within a range. So Nominal decrease yeah. in demand, but then a nominal uptick as well. Um, but, you, I mean, you see the metrics of housing demand, forward-looking metrics of housing demand, like NAHB, the National Association of Home Builders, you see their confidence immediately tick up. You see home mm -hmm. buying intentions immediately tick up. It doesn't take a lot from eight to, well, maybe that is a lot, from eight to six and a half to yep. see buyer demand come back. Never uh, really went so anywhere. No, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and we've seen this in the banks changing their forecast too, right? I mean, Goldman recently boosted their 2024 uh, target. They've got their prediction. They moved it from 4,700 to 5,100. So right now, the real bear in the room seems to be J.P. Morgan, uh, and that's that their their forecast is that the S&P will sink to 4,200, which would be a 12% decline, you know, at the year end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of yeah. those and. And 275 will get you on the subway in New York. Like it really is truly mm -hmm. worthless. Um, yeah. You know, every year, every year you look at those numbers, they're going to be for the S&P to be up about 10%. The average of those numbers every year, that's what it's going to look like. Uh, so I mean, it looked like that in 07. It looked like that in 08. It just, it really doesn't tell you anything. And I'll continue to make the argument that the best and the brightest in Wall Street strategy no longer work for the Wall Street banks. You know, we've had Torsten Slock on the podcast. He was a top II person. He went to Apollo. We've had Adam, Adam Parker on the podcast. He's got his own shop with Trivariate. Uh, a guy like DeBusher, a guy like DeGraff, 
the best, uh, Neil Dutta, the economist, the best and the brightest have moved to independent research. Uh, so, you know, what the, the, whoever the strategist is at this point at Jeffries or whatever, like, you know, I'm sorry, who cares? Uh, would you say that that range was kind of indicative of your time, uh, on wall street, Tim, I mean, 12% to the downside, 9% to the upside. I mean, you're talking about a 21 point spread, right? Uh, is that, is that an anomaly or is that pretty standard? Yeah. No, I think there's yeah. more dispersion. There's no doubt that there's more dispersion right now. Uh, there, there is some data that shows much higher dispersion of opinion uh, on uh, where earnings are going to be, on where GDP growth is going to be, uh, than historically. Look, this has been a tough. This has been a tough period, right? You know, it was only about a year ago that well, that Bloomberg had the famous headline: "100 percent chance of a recession." Like the LEIs have been negative for. A year and a half, it hasn't mattered. It hasn't mattered. Uh, manufacturing ISMs have been negative for 14 months. It it hasn't. You know, like everything is different. Everything is different because never before had we printed seven, eight trillion dollars before. Uh, never before had we had this kind of wealth transfer issue. Never before have we had. Um, you know, unemployment get to 3.5%, get to really max employment, and then not have a recession with a rate hiking cycle. And, and you know, it, it just, it, it's a very different world, a very different cycle than any of us had ever seen before. And that I think is norm as natural that it's going to create this wide dispersion of opinion. Yeah, I mean, pandemic, rate hikes, um, you know, right. from easing and tightening policies. The IMF recently came out and they think that, you know, there's a lot of resilience in the U.S. economy despite these rate hikes we've seen. Their estimation is that the U.S. is about three quarters or 75% of the transmissions already gone through. So three quarters of the effects we yeah. would have seen, we've already felt this year will feel the last 25% roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I haven't read that piece. It, it would be hard to kind of make that argument because it has been such a different tightening cycle. Um, you know, I just read this piece from a guy named Stephen Moran, who's a Harvard PhD economist. Uh, and let me just re read to you the last uh, paragraph of it, because it really speaks to how weak monetary policy has been. Remember, we had George Robertson uh, on yeah. the podcast, who basically says the Fed is irrelevant. The Fed doesn't matter. We printed $7 trillion. We, we got nominal GDP growth going crazy. Uh, my debt's been termed out in my 30-year mortgage. Corporate debt has been termed out. It doesn't. The, the Fed is impotent at this point. Uh, but Moran wrote today, the Fed's abuse of large-scale asset purchases allowed it to change the stance of fiscal policy, but it has now allowed the Treasury Department and its political leadership to change the stance of monetary policy. By severely shortening the maturity profile of its issuance, Treasury has provided significant monetary fiscal easing in the past year. Uh, and then he goes on to say that this is just simply dangerous, partially offsetting the central bank's tightening cycle, allowing Treasury to set monetary policy is extremely dangerous. So I do not believe the Fed is political. I really don't. Everybody loves to argue that, oh, Jay Powell, it's an election year. He, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think Jay Powell cares. I, I don't. Uh, but Janet Yellen does. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but 
It's a politically appointed position. She wants she's a cabinet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's in the cabinet. She wants her guy to win, right? Mm -hmm. So what is she going to do? She is going to try to offset all of that long-term supply. And it's much easier for the world, for the United States to absorb bills uh, than it is to absorb endless amounts of 10-year and 30-year paper. Uh, The result of that has been normally uh, only about 20% of issuance is in bills. Currently, it's 80%. So it's been flipped on its head. This is a very unusual period. So, you know, the the IMF can say, well, it's 75% done. I would kind of agree with George Robertson and, and, and Stephen here, who are both saying, well, it wasn't much anyway. It, it didn't have much impact. Uh, that it, They didn't go far enough to offset the tsunami of fiscal. And then the Fed was kneecapped by the Treasury by keeping all the issuance at the very much at the front end. Um, let's kind of end the conversation at the primaries and Davos. Uh, I guess let's start with Davos. Seems to be that, um, you know, a lot of the bankers there, Jamie Dimon and, and the rest of them, uh, seem to be kind of receptive of the idea of a return of the Trump presidency, or at least wouldn't be shocked by it. And I think that's played out a lot. In, in I mean, I think the primaries are going to be over tonight um, with, with DeSantis yeah. leaving. Haley's going to lose by maybe... Not quite twenty percent, but I think somewhere in that range, based on everything, a lot of DeSantos guys are going to go to her, and, and we saw that in Davos. Like a lot of people are uh, expecting it; they know it's going to be a breakdown between the these two guys, Biden and Trump, and and then the conversations were very much on that front. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. The Diamond comments kind of really surprised everybody. They surprised me in real time. You know, maybe they shouldn't have because it is all over, but the crying. And I think Trump has got to be the odds on favorite to be the next president. So if you are the uh, CEO of the uh, probably the most the largest and most powerful bank in the United States, you probably want to get in line. Right. You Mm -hmm. probably want to say some things that uh, are going to ingratiate yourself with the potential next president who has made it clear that he will be very much assertive. Uh, <laughs> with a heavy hand on yeah. the economy. So, you know, I, I think it, as much as anything, it's just, you know, it's just Jamie, Jamie Dimon's got some, he's a clever guy and he sees where the wind's blowing and he realizes he probably needs to get in line. Yeah. I'm surprised Davos is still a thing. Uh, you know, it's got no shortage of hate over the years, but uh, but it continues. It's gotten tired. It's just gotten so hacky for everybody to hate on Davos and so forth. I mean, everybody takes a plane and then they talk about climate change and that's hypocritical. It's just it's just kind of tired. I mean, I I don't know what the work is that comes out of Davos. I'm still a globalist. Right. I'm still somebody who believes in neoliberal trade policy. I, I think that it is good for the world's central bankers and the world's power brokers and, and conglo- you know, the people who run industries to, to be talking to one another. Uh, but it has become such a kind of a punching bag that, you know, you would think they would try to do some things to change the perception of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got kind of the whole skull and balls, the bones feel, but like not nearly <laughs> as cool, you know, yeah. it's, so it's, it's one of those things for, for, for 80 year old yeah. businessmen, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not the yeah. same. 
but uh, but yeah, I mean, so we'll see. I think Tuesday's going to be uh I mean, tonight's going to be it's going to probably clinch the nomination for for Trump and then uh we know what we're going to look at for the next 10 months. Um so yeah. And we'll see. And then it's the only thing between him and the nomination is the Supreme Court. Uh mm-hmm. it seems unlikely that Supreme Court is going to ban him from from ballots nationally. Um um but and and I think that um you know, everybody wants to dismiss the polls. I don't see why you want to dismiss the polls because uh, they're bad and the economy is probably going to be somewhat softer, right, with less savings uh, than now and, and probably with a slightly weaker job market. Remember, I'm not calling for some deep recession or whatever, but I am saying that things will continue to get slower, uh, even if it's only incrementally. So why would why would Biden's uh, polls look better? Uh, at that point. Um, and, you know, I, I think that one of the risks here is what you see happening uh, in the Red Sea, what you see happening with the Houthi rebels. Uh, these strikes are having any anything that I've read have had negligible impact. Right. The Houthis have been at war with the Saudis for a long time. Right. They're using cheap technology, cheap drones, cheap explosives with an endless supply from Iran uh, you know, you can keep sending $2 million missiles into the mountains. It's it's not going to stop them from doing what they want to do. Look at a map, look at the Red Sea and look at where Yemen is. Like yeah. they have all the ability in the world to be striking uh, both cargo ships and tankers, depending on how they're flagged, um, you know, all over that area. And, and unless there's going to be a ground invasion, which there isn't, uh, there's not much that the United States, the Brits, NATO can do about it. So I so no, I, I think those are that's just not going away as an issue. No, it's I mean I think it will go away as an issue once the conflict in Gaza reaches some kind of conclusion. Um we don't know how long that's going to last. Today I mean today was the deadliest day for Israeli soldiers uh so far yeah. since the ground campaign and yeah. like you said I mean the Houthis have been fighting since 2014. They're very adept at just shooting missiles and, you know, living within cities and in the mountains. And uh, I mean, yeah, it doesn't look much different than Afghanistan. It's one of the poorest countries of the Middle East and you're not going to have a ground game there. I mean, it's, it'd be, it would be an absolute quagmire. So it's just, it's just the appearance. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I could agree with you that the hoodies may stop once you're done with the, the hot war in Gaza or in Southern Lebanon, but you know, with Netanyahu coming out and saying, "Look, let's just let, let's just say the obvious out loud. There's never going to be a two-state solution." Yeah. What what, what brings an end to this? No, right? and that's uh, a good out of a too- lot of sales, you know, from state departments and foreign service departments all over the world, who were hoping that there'd right. be that this might look different than October six, you know, whenever this thing you know resumes. Um, but but yeah. It doesn't appear that BB wants that to be the case, I, I suppose. No, I mean, if you look at what BB said, if you look at what the conservatives in uh, Israel have said for a long time, it seems naive that anybody thinks that Israel is going to support a two-state solution anytime soon, like our lifetimes anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's that, that, I, that that's, the, that's the one thing. And um you know, we'll see what happens in terms of BB's upcoming elections. I mean, I, I know 
the Israeli population soured on him, but I don't know if that necessarily means they want a two-state solution now um, and what yeah. that would even look like, right? But Right. I mean, uh, his approval good. is... Yeah. yeah, his approval is incredibly low, but he's not going anywhere. It doesn't seem. No. All right, Tim. Uh, do, you, do you think we missed anything this week? No, I would just point out that um, the QRA is going to be Jan 31. Uh, so we will see uh, if if uh, it's going to matter for this bond market. It's going to matter if, uh, if if Secretary Yellen sort of normalizes the distribution of duration that they're going to issue in Q1. Uh, and I think that as much as anything, uh, more than PCE, more than GDP, more than uh, the trend of earnings uh, will be the most important thing that will determine uh, the direction of equities over the short term. Great. Thanks for your time today. And for all our listeners and subscribers, thanks as well. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.